0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. I am not Kyla Lee. I am the uh, normal guest host, Paul Doroshenko, and I am filling in for Kyla because Kyla is traveling today. Uh, Kyla also managed to get vaccinated today, so um, things are looking up for Kyla. She gets to uh, to take the day off from recording the podcast, and I get to record it myself. And I'm very lucky today because I have a guest um, on the line already uh, listening to me at this point. It's Jan Semenov. Jan is an acclaimed expert in breath testing. He's a former paramedic, former police officer, and publisher of one of the uh, most regarded, highly regarded uh, journals that we've got in North America on breath testing, it's called Counterpoint. If you are a member of the DUIDLA, it's the DUI Defense Lawyers Association, uh the uh you get a free subscription to his journal which is uh, certainly worth reading if you are a dui lawyer if you're interested in uh, impaired driving breath testing uh and uh and that sort of thing and he goes of course a little bit beyond that too because he's done some uh, research in um some of the uh drug testing instruments as well so uh welcome you on you there i am here how are you not too bad I hope that introduction was enough. That was just off the top of my head without notes. So,
0: oh, that was that was uh, that was very impressive. Was sufficient? Okay. Well, I've I've heard you introduced
1: at many different conferences. Um, <laughs> you uh, you graciously got me a, an invite to uh, to attend a conference from New York um, just a little while ago. You were presenting there. That was a great one. Uh, really good conference. And we've got another DUI DLA conference coming up pretty quick in. Uh, in
0: uh, Charleston, right. I, I won't be able to be there on that one, but uh, Tim Huey has already asked me if I'm presenting or willing to present. You know, if travel restrictions, etc., are listed in lifted in in Chicago in the fall. And I wrote back, "Oh yeah, I'm packing my bags right now. I'm I'm ready to go." Yeah, I'm ready for that trip too.
1: I'm looking forward to it. When I are love you? Chicago, uh, when, a nice time to go. When are you so. thinking you might be able to get your shot? Oh, I probably. It'll be about ten days,
0: I think, before I can make my appointment. So probably yeah. about two weeks. It's not. It's coming. it's coming. We we we're opening up in Saskatchewan starting on Monday for 55 plus. And so this is the first time ever I've been happy to be 55 plus. Yeah. Well, I took my dad for his,
1: and uh, it was painless. He didn't even notice that it happened, uh, and he's uh, quite happy about it. It's good because he's you know he's 82 years old. He lives on his own. I'm his primary caretaker. Uh, and he has had very little human contact aside from me and some medical appointments over the last year, which is uh you know not a great way to live your life when you're eighty two You'd like to be able to have your grandchildren come over and visit them from time to time.
0: you know absolutely, but i think I think the one thing that all of this has taught me is to cherish those moments that I disregarded before. Oh, I don't really want to go to my parents' house today. it's you know I got other stuff to do, and now you realize really what the important things are in life.
1: Yeah, um, I'm <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm apprehensive about so much right now. Uh, I was more apprehensive last year. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to some uh, version of normal. I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to manage to get everything done that I need to get done. Um, we, uh, we are anticipating that um, there's going to be just so much work in the next little while in the legal community. Uh, that it's going to be hard to, uh, hard to deal with it all. I mean, we're still dealing with our backlog of COVID cases. Uh, and I can imagine in the United States, I was talking to Joe Scrofano the other day and he said, the courts are closed down in DC and have been most for the most part for the last year.
0: They're, they're closed uh, down in many jurisdictions. I've, I've probably got, and, and I'm no word of a lie, 40 or 50 court attendances that are pending. And, yeah, but what I'm starting to see is the numbers ramping up again. So, we are unfortunately going to get back to normal and then some. but Well, one of, the, one of the things that did not scale back at all
1: for us in British Columbia was immediate roadside prohibitions. And for people who don't know what that is, Jan actually, lived, he lives in uh, Saskatoon, but he's become quite familiar with them in the last few years. Immediate roadside prohibitions in British Columbia are issued on the basis of a roadside breath test. So it's a, an approved screening device called a AlcoSensor FST. It's just a handheld device. The police pull you over uh, if it's a it's supposed to be a lawful pullover. and They're not supposed to pull you over for for uh, on the basis of your uh, gender or ethnicity, for example. Uh, and if they ask you to blow into one of these devices, there's two different ways they can ask you. If they ask you to blow into one of them and you blow and you provide a sample that registers a fail, you get immediately right there a 90-day driving prohibition. Uh, the your vehicle is towed. You have to pay for the storage of that vehicle and the towing for one month and then you've also got a fine license reinstatement fee driver risk premium and of course you have to take um before you're back on the road and it all happens immediately and it doesn't matter whether or not it's your employer's vehicle uh, or if your employer if you were driving an ambulance um they'll, they'll oh, seize wouldn't the that ambulance. be something yeah well it has happened um there's a, there's a review for that but there wasn't originally uh, when they were getting a postal van and a police car and an ambulance in the first version of the scheme. Um, but the um, there's been lots of critics, and I've been one of the most prominent critics about it. But one of the things, one of the advantages of it was in the pandemic, the hearings take place over the phone. And that has been the case since the start, since September 2010, when the law came into effect. So we have seen that this enforcement has continued. There's been problems with it in the pandemic. Uh, Police officers testing people who have COVID and can't provide a sample and shouldn't be, you know, they just look like they're not right because they've got COVID. We've had people who have had COVID and they've got damage to their lungs and have trouble providing a sample. We've got people who are terrified of the police (sighs) because the police are not using any protection. And so they're refusing. And then we've got police officers not going through all of the pre-steps to ensure they're getting reliable samples. But as you and I know, the pre-steps really (laughs) are are, are not quite what they should be.
0: Well, okay, so I I wanna comment on a couple of things. And first of all, I wanna say that you can tell that you are a Queens Council lawyer, Mr. Doroshenko, because that segue was absolutely masterful from the banter that we had right into the heart of the thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, let's take a look at, um, IRPs. I'm just going to call them IRPs for, for shorthand here, immediate roadside prohibitions and take a look at, at my concerns. And I have to say at the, at the outset is that I don't really care if the charges are dealt with criminally. I arrested a lot of impaired drivers when I was, um, a police officer, I tested a lot of impaired drivers as a as a qualified technician, and I've now been dealing with a lot of these events as an expert for the defense. If your jurisdiction wants to go by immediate roadside prohibition versus a criminal charge, it makes no difference to me because I'm looking at the emphasis, efficacy and reliability of the investigation. Um, and what I'm seeing overall with the IRPs is a watering down of the investigative techniques used by the officers. Yeah, and I, I mean, they're, they're,
1: the manuals published online and you can see how they do it. And that's the, you know, that's where you discover, okay, they're, they're, they've, they've jumped over a bunch of procedural protections.
0: Well, listen, you, I, I think what we have to recognize first and foremost is that those procedural protections were established going back 90 years. The um, Dr. Rolla Harger invented the drunkometer. It was actually called the drunkometer in nineteen thirty one he patented it I thought it so, was the drunkometer. I thought it was the drunkometer it was the drunkometer well, tomato tomato there mister. I've heard it in
1: toximeters
0: and toximeters so <laughs> yeah uh, exactly yeah. exactly well the 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 drunk blow thingy drunkometer okay yeah, the drunkometer drunkometer. in any event, um, any technology that we put out is going to have limitations in terms of its measurement, uncertainty in terms of its reliability in terms of its interpretation. I mean, you know, I, I, the, the reason we're all not flying, you know, Boeing 747s anymore is because things change. And now we've gone to this plane and we're not using iPhone ones because of it, you know, they're they're upselling for the next version, but it's all incremental changes in the technology. However, Every one of those changes in technology for breath testing has been predicated on the performance of past instruments, past devices, and the policy and procedures, the the training methodology, the the use, the implementation of the device out in the field at three o'clock in the morning um, needs to reflect the the weaknesses that the device itself presents. And this is really, really, really important. And nobody seems to get this. And Paul, I think, actually, you know what? I shouldn't say nobody seems to get this because you suggested to me more than a year ago that I write a thing about kind of the history of breath alcohol testing and counterpoint and talk about how it has evolved over the years. And and this is exactly what the IRP program is starting to denigrate because all of the things that were established in breath testing in terms of the policy, in terms of the way we implement the testing was based on the fact that we were dealing with inherent weaknesses in the technology of the day. Um, and as a result, the, the, the policy and, and the, the way that the officers are supposed to do their testing is supposed to mitigate any of the weaknesses that the technology has. So for instance, let's make this concrete, um, recent consumption of alcohol, the more uh, reliable, expensive, efficacious, evidentiary level instruments have got residual alcohol detection systems built and slope detectors built in so that they will detect recent consumption of alcohol or a burp. Well, they may, they should. They should, they're supposed they should. To, but they yeah, won't always. I well, mean, they're, they're, they, they, even, even the best of them have about a 35% failure rate. And I've got a lot of studies to support that data. I watched Kyla blow with
1: no alcohol in her body and just uh, like a drop of vodka in her
0: mouth and blew
1: two back to back tests that indicated a positive result on a uh, on a um, datamaster DMT the, you know the most expensive unit out there right now
0: oh yeah so can, can...
1: even with mouth alcohol detectors
0: oh yeah they don't always detect <sighs> mouth alcohol but of course we don't have that at all good point office. Like, good point really? good point that's exactly my point so even if yeah. the most efficacious of the devices have a 35% failure rate for mouth alcohol detection then a fuel cell that has no built-in capability of actually detecting that rise and drop because i mean a fuel cell takes a uh, a sample analyzes you know um, a 1 milliliter capture from 30 seconds ago and spits out a number and 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 what i'm seeing with these um IRPs is first of all, they're using, you know, the cheaper thousand $1,500 units as opposed to the $10,000 units. And they're also um, bypassing a lot of the procedures in terms of wait periods, deprivation periods, observation periods, duplicate testing is super, super, super important. It's optional in British Columbia. It's optional in most areas where they're doing IRPs.
1: The thing about the IRP scheme, I I always think like, okay, so you're going to punish people here and you're going to give them no due process. Uh, Like you're going to give them such limited uh, review provisions. At the same time, you're using devices that do not detect the presence of mouth alcohol. And to make it worse, you're testing them in the worst circumstances. Mm -hmm. You have no deprivation period. They're as close as they're as close as possible in time to the time they last consumed alcohol, right? Like if they're being tested at a detachment and you've been arrested and detained, there's 40 minutes before they get you onto an instrument. Right. But here you're testing people at the roadside and and there's no, as you say, there's no duplicate testing. There's no mouth alcohol detector. There's no duplicate testing required. But even in the circumstances where a person does provide a sample back to
0: back, there's no no 15 minutes in between them oh yeah and you know it, it's interesting for me like well okay let's put it concrete the the um the file that i did for kyla this afternoon involved uh the grounds for the stop according to the officer was i observed the suspect vehicle leaving the parking lot where a bar is located okay yeah, so you whatever. know that they have likely have been drinking recently right. yeah <laughs> and and the time of the stop was like i mean it's going to make this up now because i don't remember the times but like you know Time of driving, nine o'clock, time of stop, 9.01, time of first test, 9.03, time of second test, 9.05, done. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if you take a look again at all the things that we were required to do by um, uh, Supreme Court decisions that said you have, to, you have to provide this, that and the other that are safeguards that are designed to preserve the integrity of the breath alcohol testing system, and it is a system. Well, and it's not, it's never testing blood,
1: right? It's only uh, an extrapolation based on a it's, guess
0: with a formula that uses a range, right? <laughs> it's, an, it's an it's an indirect extrapolation <laughs> of what the blood alcohol content was. But I mean, you know, all of that aside, I mean, at the end of the day, we're using instruments, as I say, that are $1,500 handheld things as opposed to the $10,000 evidentiary things. Um, uh, the handheld uh readings are inadmissible in most jurisdictions in north america and yet somehow they become the the gold standard for the irp programs so 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 what do you think your 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 five
1: biggest weaknesses in the testing i'm gonna count on my fingers and i want to see what you okay as your Mm. your biggest things that you think are the weaknesses of in the testing
0: in the irp scheme Go. Um, okay. Number one, lack of training of the operators. The uh, qualified technician gets a five-day course. The person using the handheld or the approved screening device gets a five-hour course. If, and, yeah. and that and that makes a fundamental difference in terms of understanding when I'm getting a reliable, suitable sample that's capable of being, you know, analyzed for alcohol reliably. So, so the training of the operators number one. Number well, 2 I'm, the, I'm writing that down and I'm going to add something to that. Okay. They, okay. okay. Training of the operators, number one. Number two, the quality of the actual devices that we're using. Again, we're using something that would be inadmissible in terms of a numerical uh, result for a, a criminal proceeding, but somehow fits the bill for um, uh, an IRP. We're punishing people with the same
1: punishment that was the punishment when I started for the criminal case which was a three-month driving prohibition
0: hey listen Back st- in 99 st-
1: there was a three-month driving prohibition
0: hey for st- stigma, is, stigma is stigma i don't care yeah. if you're if you know uh, oh i know and how many how many of these irp files i'm reading the affidavits of the individual or the statement from the individual who's been charged and they are they are embarrassed beyond words that this would become known to their family or friends
1: Oh, I know. I know.
0: Okay. Luckily, so, however, the, you know, the
1: one advantage is there isn't a criminal record, so it doesn't wreck your life. You know, right. a criminal record is a life sentence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, the implications for the criminal record are, are beyond the pale. So, okay. Well, okay. The first one, what I had was uh, training, training was the instrumentation. Yeah. Uh, number three, I'm going to say is the safeguards. And these are the procedural safeguards that we had, I should be writing this down, too, so I don't repeat myself. I'm I'm writing them down. Oh, good for you. So the individual safeguards in terms of procedural things like observation and deprivation periods, uh, duplicate testing, um, oh calibration for a particular unit. You know, um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the um, Alcohol Test Committee in Canada has got it totally wrong. They say that the historical performance of a breath alcohol testing device is irrelevant to the case, as long as you've got two readings, 20 milligrams apart with an air blank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I am working in jurisdictions in the United States where I'm able to get historical data on a particular device that's being used, I can tell as I'm going through page after page after page of calibration records and individual tests, you know, with the names of the accused redacted, everything is all safe. Um, but I can say, you know what? This unit's going to go out of calibration. I can see it coming. It's going to fail. It's going it, to. It, it's going to break, and I turn the page over, and the unit's taken out of service because it went out of calibration or, or it was flooded. And you, I can... could do that. I could do the same thing back in the day with, when
1: I was collecting Alco Sensor Four maintenance records. I knew when the device was next going to begin to provide erratic readings um, on the yeah. basis of questions. Yeah. Or t- and i was able to do the same thing back in the day when i was able to get the records for the bac data master c i could tell you when the valve was beginning to yes. need to be replaced yes when it yes. was jamming and yeah. the, you know anybody who was convicted in squamish i mean any any i i would feel thank goodness i was not a judge i don't think i ever had a client convicted out of squamish but anybody who was convicted out of squamish british columbia um on a basis of a an uh BAC data master C uh, you know should be entitled 20 years later to those records because they had
0: nothing but problems with their five-way valve absolutely but I mean it's, okay so that that claim that I'm making so that, is But not... the point is the historic records can tell are relevant. it's
1: relevant to be a problem and they the records relevant. afterward are relevant it doesn't absolutely. just matter that day you know you think that people in the alcohol test committee um, you know, are, are not out in the field looking at police officers on video, screwing things up, and then examining the records and discovering the problems in the records. Uh, okay. You know, it just seems like it's, it doesn't seem like they are approaching it with the lack of, of bias that I would
0: hope. Paul, I have to, I have to tell you a, a, a funny and interesting, but maybe alarming story about that. I was involved in a vehicular homicide case. I think we discussed this one time before. Uh, out of denver where a girl was facing 45 years to life
1: for yes, yes. For, for an
0: accident and i asked and she was being um the, the 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 reading that she was being tried upon was an 081 reading yeah and I, yeah. so i said to the lawyer well let's take a look at the historical records of this device i was able to get some of the records uh not court ordered there's another big story there but long short story. I took a look at the at the records of the device and it was clearly blowing an error message 35% of the time. Yeah. So my question to you is how reliable is that 081 reading the other 65% of the time? And I would oh, say, God. you know, uh, it's really suspect, right? I mean, I wouldn't buy it as a used car and I would yep. get a better Carfax report yeah. than I got <laughs> off this breath testing device. So anyway, I'm I'm in court white, uh, on on this uh, uh, subpoena, Ducas Tikum so that we can go get the uh, the material on the on the records for this court, uh, on this device. And the the judge said to me, "Well, this seems reasonable." And he turns to me, Mr. Semenoff, like, "What do you think you you could look at for the, the how many records do you need?" I said, "Well, you know, this is a capital case. This girl's facing like 45 years to life. Uh, I would like to see six months before the event and six months after the event." Judge says, well, that seems very reasonable to me. And he and he ordered that. Well, the the state of Colorado actually never turned it over, but what they did turn over was (laughs) the um the maintenance logs, the usage logs that the officers in in Denver were actually filling out on this device. And I'll never forget the serial number of this unit was uh, 010928. And someone writes in the breath test log, unit 928 sucks. because laughing, it kept, but, but this
1: facing a 45
0: a <laughs> years to life on a vehicular homicide when she blew 081 oh, and goodness. and and you know unit 928 sucks and it turned out that this unit was blowing error message after error message after error message so don't tell me that the historical performance of a device isn't necessary to examine oh. and, and and here's why okay my masterful segue is back to why this is important for the irps they don't keep rolling logs of the ASDs that are being used out in the field. No, I know. And none of that information is available to
1: you before you have your hearing. And it takes about a year to get any of the so information. So there's no I, rolling I, log. There's no rolling log, period. So what, I, what I get in the discovery
0: packet is that uh, you, you know, unit 201-478 uh, was used for the first test and three minutes later, 202 was used. That's all I get. And I take oh, yeah. a look then a page or two later, oh, oh, four, seven, eight, nine, seven, two, they were both uh, calibrated by a certified calibrator within 30 days. Fine. Good. Okay. They're fuel cell devices. And at the end of the day, they, they float incoherently on their own as the electrolytic solution inside the fuel cell is depleted on each and every blow. And we have no way of knowing within the last 30 days, if that unit has been used five times, Mm-hmm. or 5,000 times. And that sounds extreme, but it's absolutely the case. And well, the again, interesting thing about that, I, I, I'd,
1: I'd like to talk about that a bit, because you think about it, in the rest of the country, they use ASDs differently. They don't always use an ASD, whereas we use them in almost every impaired driving investigation. So lots of times, if you're in Ontario, the police officer is not even going to have you blow, especially if you look like you're tanked and uh, you know blowing a ton HR. of alcohol on the ASD, number yeah. one. Number two, we use them two times in every investigation, so they're used doubly at least, right? Well, we don't use them two times in every investigation, a but a second, lot of times
0: they, A second unit is used.
1: Yeah, a second Ideally. unit. Ideally. Yeah, but that second unit is getting used now an extra time, right? Sure. You know, so it's it's really they're being used at least, you know, all close to double what they're used in other provinces. and And the procedural safeguards that they have with respect to calibration the manufacturer originally suggested tested every two weeks in Canada we test it once a month now Uh, and that was all crafted during the time before the IRP scheme before we were using them like this before they're getting handed around from officer to officer to roadblock I need a second device give me your device yeah I just used it here go ahead it seems to be working fine hit the bottom of this one it'll work you know Th- is in, sort in, of uh, in about
0: 1991 uh one of my one of my staff sergeants had a heart attack and he was the guy that was responsible for calibrating the alert j3as that we used at the time and that that gross jobs fell on my hands when he was in <laughs> rehabilitation and and it was interesting because those things drifted biblically and yeah and and to go from now that used uh uh a semiconductor, not a fuel cell device, but I got to have, I got to tell you another funny story. I got a phone call one time um, when I was the intoxilizer sales agent for, for, for Canada, for the non-police market. Yeah. And I got a phone call from this guy one time and it sounded like a horrible, scratchy cell phone call. And I'm like, I can't make you out phone when you get, you know, better service. And he said, I'm in the middle of the North Atlantic. And yeah, we've just done a road, we've just done a screen on the first mate of the ship. I'm on the motor vessel, yada yada, yada. And we are arriving in Halifax tomorrow morning. And our I've I've just had to put my my first mate in the brig because he's blowing positive for alcohol. And this was, you know, I mean, the Exxon Valdez is still in in, in memory, and everybody's all concerned about these sorts of issues. So, you know, this poor guy's in the brig. And he needed, by company policy, to have the approved screening device now calibrated post incident. Okay, uh-huh. yeah. so so at least I, tested. Yeah, he's tested think. and he and he's blown a he's blown a fail and he's in the brig. Yeah. So I arranged to have FedEx waiting. By the way, you can have them like, and it's expensive waiting hourly for the pickup. <laughs> As the boat arrives in Halifax, I've got FedEx there to get me these two screening devices. They were Intoxalizer SD2s. Yeah. And so FedEx to me overnight. I get them the next morning, nine o'clock delivery, and I start calibrating. The first one calibrates, no problem. It is absolutely bang on. The second one, I'm calibrating with an O4 solution, (laughs) a 40 milligram solution, because that's what they're concerned about for, you know, uh, oh, and S uh, DOT sorts of things here, Yeah. And the f- first time I calibrate it, it comes back. I'm going to get, it makes some numbers up here. 17 milligrams out of 40. Second time yeah. I calibrated 137 milligrams out of 40, then 22 milligrams, then 82 milligrams and blah, blah, blah. Now a fuel cell device, if you think about it is a, it's got a finite amount of sulfuric acid solution on the inside. And every time we introduce some ethanol to it. Some of that sulfuric acid uh, electrolytic solution is is depleted as it oxidizes the ethanol. And over time, all of the, the 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 battery acid, if you will, on the inside of the fuel cell, it ends up just kind of depleting. And then yep. towards the end of its serviceable life, a fuel spe- cell starts to sputter and die. And so now all of a sudden, you know, okay, he could have been over 40 milligrams but but the reading comes back 17 he could have been over 40 milligrams the reading comes back 127 i have no way of knowing if this device is accurate enough so i phoned the captain up again on his cell phone now he's in halifax harbor and i said okay you sent me unit one and unit two which one was used to to doesn't to, remember <laughs> i don't know what you, what do you mean you don't know did you use unit one or did two i don't know we, we we didn't mark that down. I said, yeah. Well, you know what? One of them works perfectly. The second one is totally shot. Let Gilligan out of the brig. This doesn't count, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So anyway, that's how fuel cells work. And that's how oh, I know. We had we had die. an alpha
1: sensor four that was doing the same thing, one that I bought on eBay. But <laughs> I but, but 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 tested but, and it was all, it had about the same range, 60 exactly. milligrams.
0: But 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 by the time you buy one on eBay, it's probably had a thousand tests into it. And well, I, I know, know that.
1: I mean, I've got I've got good ones too, and I expected to get one. I you know I was just wanted one as a as a prop for I had another lawyer who didn't know how to operate the thing, and I wanted it in their office. So,
0: well, listen, um, I, I had brand new Intoxilizer uh, uh, four hundred SD two SD five all brand new units, and over time they just started to die, yeah, and I wasn't giving them the kind of usage. That they would receive out in the field in something like an IRP program. These I should they test my used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I want to, right. I want to move so along though.
1: You've got to. But, but that's my third to,
0: one. That's my third point. That, three are are three
1: is call. safeguards, two okay. is quality of, of device, one is training. What's number four?
0: Um, investigative process of the officers. I I would say that when you are challenged and and, and this goes back to me being um, working in the traffic section or being a qualified technician where all of a sudden, you know, the evil Mark Brayford, Paul Doroshenko, Kyla Lee of the world is going to cross-examine me on what I'm going to do. That means I need to do it right. Yeah. And that is not happening anymore with these programs. And so what I'm seeing is the administrative controls, the yeah. investigative uh, avenues that these guys should be following, they're simply not following. Well, there's no there's no oversight, right? Um, except other officers
1: looking at it, and they're drinking the Kool Aid too, and they seem to have lost their knowledge as well. I mean, we see the quality of the of the uh, information that's provided in the police reports now is just absolutely abysmal, and it's gotten worse in the pandemic. There's no doubt about it
0: well and the quality i'm seeing in the irps are are really poor yeah and, and and every once in a while i will write back to kyle and i'll say okay this this officer knows what he's doing it was a really thorough report he's covered his he's he's covered his bases and but what i'm seeing overall in those reports is that they're not they're well they've gotten worse treating them they're treating them like like a speeding ticket or worse a parking ticket in terms of the investigative yeah, I hate to use the word the investigative acumen. <laughs> yeah, that you would yeah. otherwise. I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's
1: let's move on and see if we've got number five. Do you have a number five?
0: I don't know if I have a number five. I think I think the admini- Well, maybe the administrative controls too. If we can talk about investigative as number four, then the administrative controls, and this goes back to the idea of you know running logs and maintenance records and calibration <laughs> records and stuff like that. I, I think they're doing a perfunctory job in looking at those. And, you know, you, we have to recognize that. I mean, how many times have you got a brand new cell phone, but you still have to reboot it a month later or three weeks later or whatever, because it's, 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 it's acting flaky. So I think we need to acknowledge again. And I said this, uh, 30 minutes ago, breath alcohol testing is a system it's the spokes yeah, okay. of a wheel. You have to take a look at the training. You have to take a look at the procedures. You have to take a look at the calibration records, the maintenance records. You have to take a look at the operational issues that are being done. The, you know, all of these things are part and parcel to creating holistically a reliable result. And that's what we want is a reliable result. And at the end of the day, I mean, I, I got a file this morning from a, a lawyer in Texas and I took a look at it and, and I went through it and problematically, I mean, it, it, you know, when you take a look at the numbers at face value, yeah, this this really does look like a problem. But when I drilled down and took a look at, at, at what I was really dealing with and grafted out, I, I phoned the lawyer back up and I said, everything was done correctly. The breath results are reliable. There's nothing I can do to help you out. But this is the information that, that you need to know, yeah. right? Well, you got to be able to advise your clients. So that's what we appreciate from you is that you give us
1: the straight goods. Um, I'm going to add two things to your list of five uh, and I'm just going to add them in there. I'm not, I'm not adding to the list of five. I'm adding this to the the points. When you talked about safeguarding, one of the big concerns that I have with the IRP scheme, when we've taken away all of these safeguards, um, I, you know, my personal view is that the, uh, the, um, tendency should be to revoke if any of those things are uh, a a question and of course the tendency of the tribunal is to uphold it and to sort of reverse engineer upholding it but the uh, my next concern in there is no 20 milligram difference because the devices that we use in in British Columbia and in Canada just say warn or fail okay no idea if the person blew 320 the first time and 160 the second time at which point you would know if there's more than 20 milligrams difference you would know that there's a likelihood of mouth alcohol and it's such a simple correction for them to do it's a software change and if they gave us that if they gave us a reading and could show that they were within 20 milligrams I'd be a lot more comfortable with it a 15 minute wait period which you could do you could lawfully do it I mean the police could say look um, or that the the police could probably do it as a policy, but the the uh, government could certainly say you've blown fail once. The police officer can look to see whether or not you're a proper candidate for the IRP scheme. And if you are, 15 you minutes. You will wait later, 15 minutes provide... later. Yeah. 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 Or, or okay. you have the option of leaving, you can tell them you have the option of taking another sample in 15 minutes. 15 minutes is usually enough time to for residual mouth alcohol to dissipate. Do you want to wait the 15 minutes and do another test? Right.
0: Okay. You know, so that, you know what? I want to change my answer. Cause that actually should have been number four. Um, yeah. that is actually really important. And I mentioned this in the counterpoint article I just did about the IRPs is the fact that they are password and fail doesn't give us enough resolution. And yeah. I mean, in terms of resolving, I mean, think about megapixel for your camera here. We're, we're taking a look at the 1.3 megapixel from the early 1994 digital camera versus the 24 megapixel on the, on the modern cameras. And so with that pass, warn fail, now let's take a look. Nobody cares about the pass. Nobody cares about, well, they don't really care about the warn, but the fail. And your point is exactly right. And this is the point I make in the, in the, in the counterpoint article, the first reading could be 450 milligrams. The second reading could be 81 milligrams,
1: right? Yeah. And both of those, one hundred and two. Both of them are unreliable. You got yes. that much? No, it doesn't matter. Exactly. They're both unreliable. You've got. But what to wait. I'm
0: saying is, yeah. I'm, I'm picking those numbers for a particular reason because yeah. both of them will generate a fail on the yeah. on the ASD device, the the Alka Sensor FST. Four fifty milligrams is like uh, dead it, it, from alcohol yeah. point. Yeah. And that's the other thing. I mean,
1: you know, weigh it against the symptoms.
0: Right. Um,
1: you know, you can have somebody with uh, with no symptoms and they blow a fail and they're denying consumption. They, there can be a problem, right? Uh, it could be mouth
0: alcohol. You've yeah, got somebody be. with, with um, you know. Uh, but, but a trained and qualified operator is going to take it. And let's use some real realistic numbers. A trained and qualified operator is going to say, okay, he blew 180 milligrams on the first test and 90 milligrams on the second test three minutes later. You can't physically eliminate that amount of alcohol. It must, therefore, be both alcohol contamination. Therefore, I have to wait another 20 minutes and do this testing over again. So So, in the subcategory of
1: safeguards, the failure to know what the readings are, um, we add into our our list here. What was your your other one? My other one is um, under your um, uh, administrative controls. I would say failure to disclose. So here's what we don't get, right? I mean, first of all, they've decided what they give to us, um, which is a big problem. And if their forms direct the police officer and what to do, and, and they only have so many options and you know that there's other things take place because we hear it from clients fairly consistently. But for example, you've got a lot of information that is purportedly passed to the person when they're pulled over, right? They're pulled over. There's a discussion about um, you know, provide your license and then you're you're Shryford in BC, which is where they ask you who you are and you've got to yeah. confirm the information that's on your license. I and then there's a, one on the disclosure, yeah, by the way. had anything to drink uh, tonight or when was your last drink and um, where are you coming from? Where are you going? And then and then maybe the police officer makes the demand um, and maybe there's an answer and maybe there isn't. And maybe there's other discussion. And you know what? We see it in this form that just directs what the discussion is going to be. And it's not what the discussion is. And so often you get the recording and you're like, oh, well, there's all of these other things discussed here. Or this thing is not really explained, you know, especially like the ASD demand. To me, the ASD demand is a uh, disingenuous attempt to confuse people um, with legal jargon when they're at the roadside as a part of a sobriety test. Um, and like, I, I think it's completely wrong. I think it's, I think it should be unlawful. I think it should be a charter violation that they're conducting this sobriety test by make, reading the stupid ASD demands people. But then there's the, you know, the discussion that happens after that. And it's none of that's ever there because it's just in their template, just in the template. Yeah. So that, I add that to your, uh, your administrative controls is the failure to disclose that stuff. Hey, we've been on uh, on this uh interview for quite some time. I think we should probably wrap it up. But sure. uh there's a lot we could talk about. Last time we had this I <laughs> you and I talked about it. We had a similar thing where
0: we just went on and on and Kyla was wondering if we were ever gonna end. Um
1: but uh I'm going well, to Then she has to in. start
0: providing script when the old guys get involved. Well,
1: that's the thing.
0: And uh, you know, well <laughs> uh it's funny
1: because I think of the things that I know now after doing this for like 22 years um, and uh, and and what I knew back in my early days. Uh, I remember once I had to explain to a prosecutor who was new the difference between an approved screening device demand and a breath demand. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what, how am I going to get through this trial if I have to teach him this at the beginning? Yeah, and do you think of the sort of the learning curve and how far you've gone? That we could probably talk, you and I, for eight hours straight. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, on this no stuff is you. kind of frightening. But I want to skip ahead to my favorite part of the show. And I'm going to tie you into it today uh, because you're here and <laughs> I've got you. And that is the ridiculous driver of the week. So this was in Waterloo, Iowa. Um, And this fellow was apparently breaking into uh, a garage and it's all on video and you can you can find it. It's online. He breaks into a garage and he wants to steal some stuff and he decides to uh, to use the vehicle that's in there as a getaway vehicle, which, you know, kind of makes sense. Right. Uh, Last week, the uh, ridiculous driver uh, used a a car that he was uh, he got from a BMW dealer. He was test driving. He robbed a bank. So this guy decides to take the vehicle that's in there as his getaway vehicle. The only thing is that it was a John Deere mower. So it's 4am. He's riding down the road. He's got a bottle of vodka apparently and other things from the garage. And he's riding on this, uh, he had a bottle of absolute vodka that he took from a convenience store and he's using a mower (laughs) as a getaway vehicle. Anyway, it makes it easy to catch up if it's a riding mower as a getaway vehicle. I know that there was some humorous videos on, uh, YouTube of a guy who was pretending to do that here. This is real life. It was March
0: 31st, but uh, it was published. It was on CNN. Okay. I got a, I got a, a, a case about two years ago from the swift current RCMP where they were charging a person for, for driving a, a motorized wheelchair out of the bar. <laughs> Par, paraplegic uh, driving a motorized wheelchair and he had the, the little orange, you know, the little plastic flag on the, yeah. on the back of his chair. And you know what? He was drunk. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind. That it, and uh, he was two blocks from home in his wheelchair and they charged him for drive while impaired. Well, our former federal uh,
1: justice minister, that's what she wanted when she changed the criminal code. I'm sure the Crown Council in Saskatchewan dropped that one when they looked at it. I'm sure they didn't want to be connected to that. Uh, but they, uh negative it, sir no it uh they proceeded with it? It, it they proceeded with it yes sir oh my gosh i don't want to know anymore you're just going to wreck my night that's terrible yeah <laughs> uh, kyla was uh was discussing with um somebody this week uh the charge approval method that we use in bc it was like some government organization she was talking to and um i don't know if she was discussing this or somebody else was discussing it and she was relaying it to me i don't know i'm just I, this is like Fourth-hand hearsay you can see the quality of the evidence uh but in bc one of the things that we've got um and uh um we can thank stephen owen who was uh the one who conducted the inquiry he was also a member of the liberal government for a while there but uh he was elected in my riding but we have this charge approval standard and the prosecution makes the does the charge approval it's not the police and the prosecution looks at it and says to themselves is this in the public interest Yes, no." Okay, it is in the public interest. That can be a fairly low standard. But the next thing is, um, is there a substantive likelihood of successful prosecution? Yeah,
0: likelihood of conviction, yeah. And,
1: and they are required to keep that analysis going throughout the prosecution. So from the day they approve the charge up until the moment the matter is finished in court. And they can pull the plug in the middle of a trial. If they say, you know what, I, I'm just not comfortable with the fairness of this anymore, they can pull the plug. Um, if they're looking at it, you know, if they get the police officer comes and, uh, in the pretrial interview, the police officer sounds like he's, he, you know, he's making it up or something like that. The, the prosecutor can say, you know what, I'm, I'm not proceeding with this no. anymore. Yeah, we're done. Uh, and, you. uh, it's a good thing. How long
0: have you been a barrister? Uh, 2000. Oh, okay. So yeah. 1985, <laughs> I'm older. Uh, 1985 wow. is when I became a police officer. And I have to tell you that we would submit our uh, our file. You know, the the charges were laid from our end, and they went to the prosecution's office. And every once in a while, you would get a note from one of the prosecutors saying, "You know, come over and see me." And there would be a discussion: a about public interest, but b about you really don't have it here. You need, you know, you, there's the elements of the uh, of the offense. You may have gotten most of them, but we really need to hone in on this. So there was. And 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 again, let's go back to the IRP. When we talk about the um, the scrutiny that these sort of things get, when I was a young officer in 1985 86, the crown prosecutors, senior crown prosecutors, would take a look at the file and say, "Yeah, you're almost there. I need a witness statement from this guy and this guy and this guy, and go investigate this, and then maybe we've got something that we've got a likelihood of conviction." That doesn't happen anymore that does not happen anymore what i'm seeing is that in many jurisdictions particularly in the united states the cops call the shots and the prosecutors are almost afraid to withdraw the charge and that sense of scrutiny overall just seems to no longer uh you know reflect the sensibility that the public wants about a good prosecution well i i gotta give um you know I, I i have to
1: recognize that this is something in bc that we are doing pretty well and it's changed over the course of my career when i first started there was times where i saw police officers i thought they were threatening uh in their manner to, toward a prosecutor who was telling them look we're not proceeding with this today because you screwed this up mm-hmm. or I, you know we're not proceeding with this today because you know mm-hmm. whatever um yeah. and uh, i saw you know, police officers, corner prosecutors in the hallway of the main, you know, courthouse at two 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 Main Street, and mm-hmm. I, I've not seen that in fifteen years. I saw it in the first five years of my practice, and I think it's really an issue of recognition has you know become deeply uh, ingrained now here in BC that this prosecutorial discretion is necessary. But of course, we also have the the other side of it uh, where you know there's there's the prosecutorial discretion, sometimes the prosecutor should be exercising discretion and they're not because of their you know personal beliefs that get involved in the thing, um, right. which I guess always is going to happen. It's people, after all, who deal with the justice system. But anyway, that's my separate rant. I got to thank you. Um, this was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Always enjoyed it, Paul. And I and I really hope that uh, that it managed to record. So, <laughs> but if it didn't, if it didn't, we could have another discussion. First yeah, thing tomorrow if, morning.
0: If, if it doesn't record, then I'm going to come back and be you know not as erudite as I thought I was. Now, kind of.
1: You know what? We'd probably yeah. Well, it depends if you have a drink. The uh, the uh, I, I remember once that I. Uh, was working on some project in university and I lost it on my computer system. And I thought, oh my God, I'll never make anything that good again. And I went to do it again. And it was that much better the second time around. So <laughs> if we have to do it again, we'll do it better. I, I have notes we can work with. Anyway, if you need to get a hold of Jan Semenov, you can certainly Google him. Uh, you'll probably get his uh, his website for his photography. He's got He's a fantastic <laughs> photographer. Um, you can certainly call myself or Kyla. Um, and um, you your company is industrial training
0: and industrial training and design, yeah, and design.
1: Um, because you've also done and constructed courses for people, right? And uh, right. He, uh he is uh, uh, an expert to know if you're in this field, that's for sure. Uh, certainly lots of good publications and usually can figure out what the issue is real fast. Um, so I thank you, Jan coming on and uh, if you need to get a hold of myself it's uh you can give me a call 604-685-8889 and of course you can get uh, kyla lee at that um, number as well and you can find her on twitter at at irp lawyer tune in next week for another exciting episode of driving law kyla lee will be back then